Welcome to the Probcast. This is the regular podcast of Provenance, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. My name is Drew Griffin. I'm the managing editor of Provenance. I have with me today at this episode, Sorab Amari, who is the senior writer at Commentary Magazine. He spent five years as an editor and columnist at the Wall Street Journal and its opinion pages after earning his law degree from North Eastern University in Boston. He was born in Iran, converted to Catholicism in 2016, and has written about his conversion in the Catholic Herald, and has an upcoming memoir of conversion from Fire by Water, which comes out in January of 2019 and is already available at Amazon.com. He is a friend uh, to me personally, and he is a contributing editor to uh, ProvidenceMag.com. So, so Rob, thanks for being on. Thank you, Drew. It's uh, it's a joy to kind of sit and talk with you. We uh, have conversations, you know, in private. Have conversations uh, uh, off off the record and and you know away from mics, talking about the Middle East and talking about uh, America's role in the Middle East. You have a, a recent um, uh, column in Commentary Magazine talking about Saudi Arabia, and so Saudi Arabia has been certainly on the forefront of everyone's kind of radar screens, talking about. Um, uh, the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia, the Jamal Khashoggi affair, the uh, rise of kind of MBS and his kind of frequent international missteps, uh, how Turkey plays into all of this. And you have kind of cautioned and you've kind of pushed back on some of the the, the fervor and some of the kind of hysteria that's broken out um, uh, uh, concerning Saudi Arabia and concerning Khashoggi affair. And I want you to kind of like kind of go through a little bit of what your your rationale is to just try and say, hey, sobriety needs to prevail here, that this relationship is important, and, you know, we need to kind of be measured in our response. Talk a little bit about what you what you mean by that. Sure. Uh, so the piece got uh, some positive reaction, but there were plenty of people who, who chided me for being uh, cold-blooded. Um, uh, you used to do that, though, right? I mean, that's a... That's a sometimes, a but I, w- <laughs> what I would say is that, you know, what happened to Jamal Khashoggi was unquestionably heinous, first of all, we should establish that, that it's becoming impossible for Saudi Arabia, including its senior leadership, to deny responsibility for the crime, um, and that the U.S. should respond in some fashion, reproach both public and private, you know, maybe other steps. But... The only point that I was making is against a certain kind of thinking in in Washington, especially among a kind of liberal foreign policy crowd that always disdained Saudi Arabia to begin with and are now saying, well, this episode um, requires us to rethink the whole relationship. Um, and I think that's, that that would be a mistake. Now, it may be that we are fed up with so many things with Riyadh that we decide that, 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 we, that a, an unsettling rupture with one of our closest allies and one of our most complicated relationships is necessary. But what I would just point out is that no great power pins the continuance or discontinuance of its strategic relationships on on, on one incident like this, uh, if we ta- now, if you want to go through the whole Saudi rela- relationship and have a have a sober examination, fine. But um, but this incident alone, knowing what we know about Saudi Arabia, which is basically that it's you know one of the world's least free societies, um, with, with a fundamentalist clerical class, essentially the last truly absolute monarchy um, that one can think of, that's Saudi Arabia. But who else do we have in the region? I mean, what, what is the regional map that we're facing? And for all of the unsavory aspects of Saudi Arabia, and I'm the first to decry them, Saudi Arabia is not a 
systemic enemy of the United States and what remains of the U.S.-led order in the Middle East. In other words, it's not a state that's founded on the idea of unseating American power or displacing us out of the Middle East. Rather, it's, it's deeply bound up with the U.S.-led order and, and, and has been actually alarmed over the past decade or so by the U.S.'s own turn away from that order with the Iran deal and so forth. So uh, that's the power we're dealing with. It's, it's unsavory in various ways. I, I don't deny that. Um, but the, the region that we're facing is one where there is a rising Iranian hegemony that is kind of ideologically, systematically opposed to U.S. power, um, whose founding cry is death to America in a way that's never been the case with the House of Saud. You're facing um, this complicated, I would say, brotherhood-inspired governments or brotherhood-friendly governments in, in Turkey and Qatar. Uh, it, and then you're facing all sorts of non-state actors and ungoverned spaces across Middle East and North Africa. That's the landscape. Uh, and then you have Israel, which is, is a completely different kind of relationship. Um, you don't unsettle one major factor in all of that based on this one incident. You certainly punish, you chide, you reproach, maybe take sanction steps. I don't know about that, but it, it's worth considering. But all I'm cautioning against is a kind of total rupture. Right. So you, you have a line in there that I find kind of helpful, that they are terrible friends, but they're friends in a region full of enemies, right? So it's, it's, it's sort of the, the enemy of our enemy is, is our friend kind of by choice. One of the fascinating things about uh, our relationship with Saudi Arabia is it's, you know, it's long been predicated on a, a kind of a mutual interest, that we had energy interests that they facilitated there in the region, uh, and that we viewed them uh, kind of, as you look at the, all of the bad actors that are throughout the, the Middle East, they are um, probably one of the most stable regimes and have been one of the most stable regimes um, throughout the kind of the history of the modern Middle East. And that, that stability is very attractive, right? And even though we know, and, and one of the things that amazes me is, is why there should be any surprise at all at what happened to Jamal Khashoggi. I, I know that it's kind of out of their character to do something that brazen on the international stage in another country. But the, the fact that they would persecute a journalist or do something that's, that's arguably barbaric, this is a, you know, a nation that still allows for and, and facilitates crucifixions and beheadings, right, as, as capital punishment for even like nonviolent drug offenses. So it's not as if, you know, only for kind of capital offenses. So this is a, a brutal regime with a horrible human rights record. So we shouldn't be surprised uh, by the way that they act. But that stability that they kind of represent, one of the things that you caution the United States and, and kind of the, the West against is doing anything to kind of destabilize that regime, right? Because there's, there's some value in having that, that, that stable regime there. But what I would want to kind of ask you, what I want to kind of look into is, is a lot of the criticism now is that Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, is... Um, That's the our, crown, crown prince and... Right, uh, yes, yeah, yeah the, who, who has now been kind of given the reins uh, by, by his father. Um, has over the last 17 months, 18 months or so of, of leadership, has shown himself to be, you know, increasingly unpredictable and increasingly, I think, unstable. He's had a number of, of a horrible kind of international missteps, uh, PR disasters, of which Khashoggi is, is probably like the most heinous and the, you know, most like public. But um, I would say that there, there should be kind of mounting pressure on the part of the United States, if, if not to, you know, destabilize and break all relationship with Saudi Arabia, is to not fall into the trap of just becoming transactional, right? Because what we see with, with Russia, what we see with um, 
uh, with, uh, you know, Turkey and other actors is that Saudi Arabia can do horribly, you know, morally heinous and awful things. And as long as, like, we have the – they're paying the bills that we want them to pay and buying the goods they we want them to buy, we have a transactional relationship, we're not going to speak into it. But the U.S. right should be different. I mean, the U.S. should apply some level of its of its kind of moral leverage to affect the culture. So what what do you think the prospects are for kind of MBS and the U.S.'s relationship, you know, with him – um, looking into the future, do you think that there is a, a future, you know, for him? Is he going to be a, a presence there that we're going to have to deal with, um, an increasingly unstable presence for the next 20 or 30 years? Or what's your what's your kind of uh, prognostication there? Well, I think for prognostication, we need to do some historical looking back. And I think the question is, why did MBS rise to such power? In other words, why did the Saudi power structure conjure this very ambitious, very bold character, uh, you know, to the forefront? How, how, did he, how did he bubble to the forefront? When, as we know, you know, previously power had always been handed down laterally across, uh, you know, the, the founder, uh, Benaziz's sons, they went, you know, each son would uh, each brother would get uh, sort of uh, hold of power for a few years. Therefore, all the re- leaders were octogenarians by the time really they came right. to power. And then suddenly you have a 31-year-old, 32-year-old. Now he's like he's 33. Um, and, and the answer to that is partly you already alluded to it, which is that the alliance of mutual interest with the U.S. has been frayed for various reasons. One of them is the fracking revolution in the U.S., where the you know uh, the U.S. and possibly Europe increasingly needn't rely on on Saudi oil, um, and the sense among the Saudis themselves that perhaps either oil was running out or replacements were coming down the road, the sense among the Saudis that uh, with what they saw in the Iran deal suggested that maybe the U.S. isn't behind them 100 percent, maybe even in, in fact the U.S. wants to tilt away or try to tilt away from the Saudi is. The Saudis, Israel, and the sort of traditional Gulf states, except Qatar, um, they they watched all of that and they said, "We need to make changes. Our own system needs changes. It's kleptocratic. It's uh, only ten percent of women are in the workforce." Um, uh, the, and only recently, as part of the like Vision Twenty Thirty initiative, were allowed to drive. We were, like, yeah. They <laughs> couldn't drive, which right. barred them from from so many aspects of life. Right. Um, life itself was stifling because they couldn't even go to young Saudis couldn't even go to movie theaters. There were no public movie theaters, uh, and in and and and, and they essentially lived in this welfare state where everything was paid for, cradle to grave, as long as they surrendered responsibility. And and the Saudi system realized that that needs to change. And the figure of MBS was one who I will admit I was dazzled by because he came and he said. You know, he wants women to drive, and he 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 did make that change. He wants kid young young people to be able to go to the movie theater. He wants to break this kind of petro welfare state model, uh, and he wants Saudi Arabia to take responsibility to itself for its own defense as well, which you know had already begun before uh, uh, King Salman came to power, but it definitely was ramped up afterward. There there are efforts to check Iranian aggression. Uh, Czech Iranian adventurism in in Yemen, among the Houthis, elsewhere in the region. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that the U.S. encouraged a more active. You know, we used to call Saudi the cautious state. They were so 
uh, acquiescent to whatever the U.S. said as their as their patron state. And we told them, no, we want the Iran deal, although obviously that's changed now with President Trump, but under Obama, we told them we want the Iran deal. We signaled to them that we don't need their oil as much anymore. And so they felt like they had to change. And the figure that they threw up was this 31-year-old who I think, again, his reform program is good for Saudi in many ways. It fits the character of the Saudis. This is a society with zero real civil society, no democratic or constitutional tradition. So if there's going to to be change, it has to come top down the way Reza Shah Pahlavi, the first Pahlavi Shah, changed Iran, or the way Ataturk turned, you know, the re the, the detritus of the of the Ottoman Empire into the modern nation state of Turkey. That's the kind of person who can change societies like Saudi Arabia. So they threw up this character. Now, the only flaw in uh, you know, or flaw or potential issue in this is is he a psychopath? Right. <laughs> that's right. The, yeah, I yeah. think that's the question you're touching on. Right. All this would work if he's not a psychopath. And there have been hints, not a psychopath certainly, but that there is, that his ambition goes too far or his character is too impulsive. You know, uh, I, this case was so awful that it eclipsed what came before it. I don't know if you remember this, but they had a tiff, an ongoing tiff with Qatar. Right. Qatar ed is edging toward Iran. Qatar has always supported the Muslim Brotherhood, which the Saudis loathe. Right. They're and financially so, supporting Turkey. Yep. Financially yeah, right. So what, yeah. what did the Saudis do? They have started a project oh, yeah, to literally yeah. turn yeah. Qatar, which is a small sort of peninsular formation at the tip of Saudi, into an island. Yep. They're spending billions of dollars digging a, a canal. That takes a kind of madness, you know. Uh, right. and, and so you wonder with this or with the sort of pseudo hostage taking of Hariri, the right. Lebanese uh, uh, prime minister for not towing the Saudi line enough or not being tough enough on Hezbollah. When there's is he crazy? Right. Imprisoning, you know, a number of members of the royal family, you know, in the Ritz-Carlton. Um, I think the Canadian uh, ambassador tweeted at some point something kind of critical of the Saudi regime and they, they ejected you know, the Canadian uh, delegation out of Saudi Arabia and basically began to kind of like break off um, diplomatic ties with, with Canada for crying out loud, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's okay if Donald Trump does that because, I mean, obviously, you know, they're, you know, our neighbors to the north are, are menaces, but, you know, for them to do that over a tweet is, is, is pretty kind of dramatic. There are two kind of themes that I want to press into kind of briefly that you, that you, you know, raised. If the, an economic theme and then kind of a security theme. So the economic theme would be that, you know, as they transition away from kind of petrol economy, right, as they begin to develop a more kind of uh, corporate model and they have things like Davos in the desert, which is, you know, going on um, uh, this month in October, uh, you know, they are trying to, I think, kind of uh, just like uh, the UAE, uh, open themselves up to foreign investment, open themselves up to kind of foreign and development and to be a safe harbor for foreign capital so that they can kind of develop that level of their economy that doesn't exist. The only problem with that that they don't seem to kind of recognize is that the extent to which they're unstable, the extent to which they have, they engage in these kind of outlandish, you know, heinous acts abroad is going to put that into jeopardy. Like they, and what seems to be clear is that MBS cannot connect one, you know, level of action to another. He can't seem to connect that, you know, if I'm going to dismember a journalist for writing just moderately critical columns about our, our kingdom, 
and dismember them on foreign soil, like it's going to be really hard for me to encourage, you know, businesses to come and, you know, and, and what if, you know, some CEO has some negative thing to say about the kingdom, he's going to wind up in pieces, you know, that's, and you had a number of CEOs withdraw from the Davos in the desert. And you had even like uh, Steve Mnuchin decide, you know, he's not going to, um, to show up. And so there seems to be kind of um uh, a disjoint there between their their kind of economic plan and then the security plan is like they seem utterly incapable of like administering their own security right I mean they they are are not the you know Saudi military is not very effective as proven by their war in Yemen you know they have they've been pr- trying to prosecute some kind of war there for you know um, uh, three four years yeah now. Yeah, yeah and it, to almost no to almost to no effect that it's produced this odd kind of quagmire stalemate that's a humanitarian disaster now and so um you know they are they are reliant upon the united states for their security and there's really no one else to offer that to them right you know there's no one else who's going to i think offer that uh that 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 service and again you know the extent to which that they're antagonistic or mbs is antagonistic puts that into into jeopardy so it's i i you know looking into you know, both of those, both the kind of economic level and the security um, level, is there, um, is there hope for MBS? Like, do you think there's, a, you know, is, is there um, uh, an avenue or a route to where the, uh, the king or someone in his family just simply does away with him or that he well, like, is the, replaced? The, or? the king seems to have entered into senescence. So, you know, one would hope, one would hope that this incident and the reaction it, it provoked will... Um, ha- that there is enough of a feedback loop for the family to realize that this is uh, that this was a terrible mistake, and there needs to be a course correction made. Um, I, I, I would we would only speculate then what that would look like because the the w- inner workings of the House of Saud are b- basically a a black box. Who knows? Right. Um, but I, you know, in personality driven autocracies so much rise on the personality of the man at the top. And um, again, I think, I, you know, I, I have I've now zero illusions about democratization across vast swaths of the Middle East. I just think that, that, that there are cultures that are not, there are political cultures that are, that are hardwired for more authoritarian forms of rule. And we need to come to terms with that. You know, I, I, I don't, think that every corner of the world needs to be governed the same way. But, and, and in the Middle East specifically, I mean, I think if you really want to improve things, sometimes you need someone who is, who is uh, uh, you know, willing to be really tough. But there's a difference between being tough, being bold, being ambitious, and being insane. Right. And, uh, you know, this is one more piece of evidence for the idea that Mohammed bin Salman is tipping into insane territory, um, in which case the U.S. should try to, you know, carefully, maybe, I don't know, rein him back or, or um, you know, encourage other family members to check him. I don't know. Um, but again, all of it should be done with an eye toward the fact that if the Saudis are bad, bad friends, imagine how bad they could be as enemies. Uh, with an eye toward what does Russia want to do? Does Russia w- would Russia be happy to displace again the U.S. out of the Mid- in this corner of the Middle East as well and become the main patron for Saudi? Um, and and would Putin in any way restrain any of 
Mohammed bin Salman's uh, worst instincts. Who knows? So, all, all, so all I'm urging, I think, is sobriety, right. calm, uh, kind of a longer historical view, um, and not the sort of punish Saudi Arabia in a come what may. Right. Um, so as we kind of wrap up this segment, I want to kind of ask you, you know, Providence exists to equip, uh, you know, the American mind to engage the real world. And we try and do that by kind of applying Christian conviction to world events. And as a Christian, I, I want you to kind of walk us through as, as you've, you're a man of the world, right? You, you've traveled and you, you have a kind of extensive international understanding and an understanding of the Middle East uh, that I think is important. Of, of helping Christians understand when they, when they you know, we, as Christians have a tendency to be very binary, you know, everything black and white, there are good actors, there are bad actors, you stay away from bad actors, you support good actors, and, and that's kind of, you know, uh, we, we condemn the bad, we praise the good, and there, there's no kind of gray space. But politics is all about the gray. And in the Middle East, kind of to your point of what you, you wrote about in your article and what we've been talking about so far, is there's this idea that it's like, if not them, who, right? If not Saudi Arabia, who? If, if they are, you know, they may be a terrible friend, but they're a friend in the presence of a bunch of other enemies. And so, like, how do you help maybe, how can you maybe help Christians understand the, the kind of uneasy relationship that sometimes we need to have with really unlikable, despicable people and regimes, right? Because that's, uh, it's, it's something that I think a lot of Christians are just very ready and easy to just kind of condemn and just say, well, we should just break it off. And you know, these are horrible actors. And, but I mean, the reality is, is that like sometimes the enemy of my enemy is my friend and I have to make uneasy partnerships in the real world if we're trying to help people think through the reality of the situation. Like, how do you help talk a Christian through that kind of uneasy relationship? You know, uh, Chesterton famously said that the fall is uh, the only aspect of kind of scriptural revelation for which we have really good, really solid empirical proof. Right. Yeah. Um, and politics in the Middle East, I would say, is the distillation of that evidence <laughs> or we have right. yeah. proof of the fall in, in, in real time. Um, and so I would just echo what you just said, that, that, um, that this is not a region with, with binaries in which you know, small D Democrats are facing off against, uh, you know, bad autocrats with a capital A, right. bad Islamic autocrats with a capital A, that there are lots of lots of shades of gray and, and the shades of gray can go into really, really, you know, sort of rich uh, pitch black zones. And so sometimes your dark gray is still preferable to the pitch black. Right. And that's the kind of choice. And I think, you know, uh, that we do have, a, a, you know, biblical examples of, of, of certainly in the, in the Old Testament of, of, of prophets and, um, you know, people we look to as Christian types, although they're, they're in the Hebrew Bible, you know, dealing with, with real world, world tyrants, you know. Um, you know, Cyrus the Great was a, was a conqueror. Uh, in the classic Middle East mold, right. and yet, uh, you know, to the Jewish people, he was he was deliverance from uh, from exile, right. uh, and others of the kind you can you can you can think of. So, uh, your point about the binaries, I especially remember the binaries, you know, in the early years after after nine eleven, right. where I, I bought into them as well. Sure, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. And, 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 yeah. and, and autocrats and Democrats, <clears throat> right? Autocrats and Democrats, and and the idea that if only, 
if only autocrats weren't there, right. Islamism wouldn't be a force either. Right. Well, we just saw that, that I, mean, I think we've seen that that's not true. And by the way, that the Islamist project, which is a real threat to, to Christian life in the Middle East, is much older than the modern autocratic project. Uh, the Islamist project, uh, as a sort of ideological worldview, has roots in the 19th century. Um, so it predates the Nasser's and the Saddam's and right. the and the Mohammed the bin Salman's and the nationalists. Right. Yeah, it is its own thing, and that's I, I you know again you have to pick your enemies. Yeah. So um, as when we come back, uh, kind of from the uh, from a break, I want to talk about your recent trip to Israel, um, and you've been several times, but you just recently went to Israel. I want to kind of compare and contrast to like earlier trips to this most current one, and kind of get. Uh, your perspectives of how Israel is, is viewing the United States and maybe the Trump administration right now, uh, especially since it's, uh, and talking about Saudi Arabia and the region, it's, it's definitely pertinent. Uh, so we'll talk about that when we come back. with Sorab Ahmari here at the Provcast, which is the regular podcast of Providence, uh, Journal of Christianity and American Foreign Policy. I'm Drew Griffin, Managing Editor. We've been talking about the Middle East. We've been talking about Saudi Arabia, and I want to drift slightly further west to uh, Israel. Uh, Sorab, you recently uh, took a trip to Israel. You've been there several times over the last uh, several years, since maybe 2011, I think it was your first trip. 12, okay. And, um, you know, this most recent trip, I I was there in August uh, for several weeks and had an opportunity to sit down with a number of like Jewish families and, and we would sit down and have Shabbat dinner and, and kind of discuss, uh, you know, the, the current state of, of Israeli affairs and U.S.-Israeli affairs. And, and I walked away with my own kind of perspective, but I would love just to hear your perspective of your time there, of the conversations that you had and, and you know, what you think the, maybe the Israeli perspective is right now on the kind of Israeli-U.S. relations, especially, you know, vis-a-vis the Trump administration and their their radical shift from, you know, in direction from the Obama administration. Yes, yeah, so I, um, this this happened to be this latest time I, I, I went to Israel, or uh, this latest trip was um, with a group of mainly Catholics, mainly conservative Catholics. And uh, obviously there was a theological component of, uh, you know, exploring the, the, the geography of salvation, as it were, which is a very... Is a physical thing and not a, sure. not a mere uh, not a mere story, but things that happened in real places. That was fantastic because this was the first time I went to Israel, really with, uh, see it through Christian eyes. My own, rather than, you know, I, I'm a secular outsider just looking at these three religions making right. their uh, contending claims on this landscape. Um, so that was that was excellent. But I would say, compared to my previous trips, more than ever. I thought that the country is very optimistic. The first time I went was in 2012, and you remember that was when there was really talk of of, of is you know of Israel having to maybe strike Iran's nuclear facilities on its own, right. uh, and what that would mean, and whether they they were prepared to deal with the tens of thousands of rockets that would then rain down on them from, uh, from southern Lebanon and and from Gaza, and all of that. It wasn't that you know. Fast forward, you know, five, six years later, and so much has turned Israel's way, partly as a result of the election, um, and partly as a result of this 
new mood in the region of which Mohammed bin Salman is a representative, which is that the traditional Sunni states are have increasingly decided to bandwagon with Israel because they see that after six decades of enmity against the Jewish state that, that, that Israel is not the real threat that they face to their own security, that they have either their own problems or it's Iran, but it's certainly not this tiny country that's sitting there and, 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 and inventing things that could help their water problems and uh, you know all this economic development and certainly the it is a kind of a security anchor in the region um, so that's a that's a notable change from when I first went and I think that buoys their, their the Israelis mood another is for good or ill a sort of broad disinterest in the global scene in uh, in the Palestinian question now that doesn't mean the Palestinian question shouldn't receive attention. Right. For various reasons, to the extent that it doesn't, it's because the Palestinians have given up every opportunity. Um, and so uh, you have this, I, again, I remember comparing to 2012. 2012 was when very serious people would turn to me and say, okay, the Arabs failed to destroy Israel through boycotts, then through uh, outright war, then through intifada, but now they've turned to sort of ideological delegitimization. And that, you know, with BDS and things like that, right. that's still going on today compared to 2012. But the anxiety about it, I, I just sensed that had, had gone down a bit because just in those years, so much else has gone so much worse in the Middle East that right. few serious people look at the region and think, oh, look, um, you know, 500,000 people at least dead in Syria, you know, four, four million Syrians displaced internally, another four million Many more than that. I'm, I'm, under, I'm underestimating these numbers, but x many million displaced in in, in Jordan, Lebanon, and destabilizing Europe. Uh, you know, Saudi's war with Iran, the proxy war with Iran, the horrors of Yemen. Very few serious people, I think, look and say, you know, what the problem in the region is? This tiny kind of relatively stable right. democratic Jewish state. So. I sense that optimism. I don't know if that resonates with your sense of those dinners. Yeah, no. The first time I went was in uh, 2013, and it was uh, kind of the Mar I think March Easterish around that time of 2013, and it was right after just you know in the in the winter of 2012 2013 there were just uh, numerous rocket attacks. You know the the Iron Dome had really kind of just been set up, and so it was uh, interdicting missiles that were coming in from uh, the Golan Heights in Lebanon and from Gaza, and there were you know it was a very tense kind of time uh, as the Syrian civil war was was beginning to ramp up. And I, I likewise sensed an ease in the tension when I was there in August and a, a level of confidence. One, because they, I think, feel that they really do have like 100% of the United States, you know, government support. Like I think they, you know, there was always kind of verbal uh, lip service on the part of the Obama administration for Israel just because you have to. I mean, it's kind of an American mm -hmm. thing. Um, but in terms of the the partnership that the Trump administration has with evangelical Christians, evangelical Christians just unqualified, you know, support of um, uh, or undaunted support of, of Israel, and you couple those two things together, moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, trying to kind of partner with. Uh, Saudi Arabia to find a solution for the kind of Palestinian problem, there seems to be like, yeah, an increased level of confidence and security. And I, I felt when I was driving around, I rented a car and I was just driving up into Galilee and just driving through the region, never at once at any point felt unsafe and never sensed the kind of tension that I've felt in the region before. 
uh, when I visited, or even when I was in Jerusalem <clears throat> and I was around the Temple Mount or I was walking through the old city, I can remember in 2013, you know, the presence of armed guards and, and just the, an increased kind of palpable tension that was in the city that wasn't there. Uh, when I was there this last August. So yeah, I would definitely kind of echo that. You've written a little bit about, um, in Commentary Magazine, about uh, the Palestinians and the, and the tendency that the, the West has to kind of remove agency from, you know, Palestinian action. That they they have this, this, uh, this kind of, whatever happens, whether it's a bombing, whether it's a riot, whether it's, you know, storming the, the uh, checkpoint in Gaza or the West Bank, that whatever happens, it's always couched in terms of Israel does X. You know, Israel bombs uh, Gaza, Israel uh, fights back Palestinians, Israel does, and it never is ever couched in, in terms of, you know, Palestinians attack checkpoint or Palestinians, you know, run uh, blockade at Gaza or anything like that. That there's, there's this tendency on the part of the West to remove any kind of agency and responsibility from, you know, uh, Palestinians, that they're somehow just total victims. Right. Of, I'll of, give you a really good example. Yeah. Of this. I mean, just, there's so many that it's almost frustrating that I, I, I don't remember all of them, but I'll, I always have one imprinted in my mind, and it's this one. Um, you know, this summer, there was a brief flare-up in Gaza, mm -hmm. and the headlines at the BBC and like-minded outlets were written in such direct statements, right? right? Like, Israel bombs, civilians die, right. something like that. But there was one around the same time, maybe a little earlier in the New York Times, I'll never forget. It's Jewish man dies as, as uh, stones pelt his car. Wow. Yeah, right. Yeah. The stones yeah. killed him. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. The stones pelt him. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, that's kind of like... I don't remember the exact, but it's it was kind of like that, in, yeah. in, in like, you know, in a liberal websites talk about SUVs that run people down. You know, it's never... It's always the, the gas guzzling SUV that ends up like, you know, causing some kind of accident. And it's always couched in terms of like, it's not a driver that does it. It's an SUV that does it. That's SUV right. SUV is obviously, right. you know... That's right. So um, in this case, it was right. the stones. But... but, but um, no, that's right. I mean, the, the context in which I wrote that piece about Palestinian agency was uh, this this onrush at the this rush of people at the at the Gaza fence, um, in which Israel responded, uh, and you know, uh, yes, civilians died, and, and and obviously Israel, because it's a democracy, investigated what that response was, whether proportionate, no, so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, you know, is you know, Israel has withdrawn from Gaza. It's done so for more than a decade, so it, right. it, and it has no control over that territory. So it's really, you know, it's not Israel that's forcing, you know, tens of thousands of people to amass at the border and then to rush it and and to not calculate that a sovereign state will defend its borders. I mean, what what country would, you know, respond in any different way when you have thousands of people, you know. With, with stones in hand and hurling, you know, uh, Molotov cocktails and so forth, how would they respond? Um, so that was the concept. And it's very unfortunate because it, that mentality actually, I think, perpetuates the conflict in some ways because obviously Israelis aren't going to budge when they feel like one actor themselves faces all the criticism and, and right. pressures and one actor is seen. It, it is, by the way, it's a very kind of condescending, almost pseudo-racist way is seen as a sort of you know, a wild man who can't, you can't expect them to not rush the border. Right, right, yeah. It's, uh, well, the dirty little secret in the Middle East is that uh, among Arab nations, they all view the Palestinians with a certain amount of, like, 
loathing and disrespect. Like there is not a, you know, there isn't for what, I mean, they all hate Israel. I mean, that's typically the, what you'll, what you'll get as the official line, but it's not, they, they don't hate Israel because they really love and like support and, and, and view the Palestinians as like really noble actors. Like, and, and I think what you see is when the United States tries to partner with Saudi Arabia to force some sort of, you know, uh, leverage against the Palestinians to maybe get them to come to the table or come to some sort of like agreement, you know, one, we kind of overestimate, I think, the amount of leverage that Saudi Arabia has. And I think Saudi Arabia doesn't really care all that much. I mean, if the Arab nations surrounding, especially the, the rich ones, you know, the Gulf states or Saudi Arabia, the nations with immense wealth and resources, if they truly cared about the Palestinians, if they truly wanted to like help, if they wanted to kind of facilitate refugees or house refugees or do, you know, what I mean, they could easily do it by cutting a check and it, it, you know, they wouldn't even miss the money. I mean, and, and yet, um, what the Palestinians have increasingly, and I'm, I'm not unsympathetic to, and I'm pro Palestinian people. I'm pro Israeli people. Like I'm, I'm pro people, right? That's part of, you know, uh, my organization is part of, you know, provenance is that we are, we're pluralistic. We believe the Palestinians have a right to exist. I think they have a right to their own their own space and their own state. I think Jews have a right to exist. They have a right to their own space and their own their own state. Um, but what you see among Palestinians is, is it, no matter what aid that they are given, no matter what autonomy that they are given, their um, constant ability to kind of waste those opportunities and not um, not act on them. So when I go to the West Bank and I'm going through Ramallah, I'm seeing you know um, kind of the zone A, right, the premier zone of of the West Bank in terms of, of being completely controlled by the Palestinian Authority um, and having kind of full autonomy. And they could, with the aid that they're, they're given, the international aid that they're given, uh, turn that place into a show a showpiece. I mean, they, they could remove the water tanks that are on top of people's towers, but instead you have the leaders living in lash, you know, lavish palaces and you have immense, beautiful mausoleums for Yasser Arafat, but the people on the street are, you know, a victim of this kind of kleptocratic uh, government. So what, you know, as you have kind of conversations over there and as you've kind of evaluated the situation, what kind of hope, apart from Jared Kushner, you know, we put all our hope in him apparently, <laughs> uh, you know, what hope is there to, to see some sort of, um, uh, you know, the logjam break or some sort of movement in terms of uh, uh, maybe seeing the Arab community finally have some, some leverage against the Palestinians to get them to act responsibly? Again, I think that that, that crux there is is Saudi Arabia and the Sunni powers what they can persuade you know again to his to his credit um, this was four or five months ago when Mohammed bin Salman brought Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas to Riyadh sat him down and according to the New York Times outlined peace terms that would make Menachem Begin the famous sort of hawkish Likud uh, former prime minister of Israel, it would make Begin blush, right? right? So you're gonna you're gonna have demilitarized state. <laughs> right. You're gonna get. That's what you're gonna get. And you're right. Gonna, um, that's again another another re another reason where I th where I think if MBS can pursue that, that would be a world historical thing that gets taken off the table is this right. Palestinian issue with the buy-in of the major Sunni Arab powers. Obviously, Iran will always oppose it and seek to undermine it. Um, but it's a it's a real opportunity, but it has to you know it has to come from there. 
because the the Palestinian politics themselves, as you better as you know better than I do, uh, are dysfunctional. You have Mahmoud Abbas, who's he's, uh, aging. He's famously a, a chain smoker, right? And and he's been serving the twelfth year of a four year a term, uh, uh, and there's no Palestinian leadership kind of next generation on the horizon because that's not how these leaders think. They don't think of cultivating the next generation. They just think that I'm going to hang cult on of personality, yeah. as long as I can. Um, then that they're divided. I mean, the, the Palestinian Authority wants nothing to do with Hamas. There's a real fear of what would happen if Hamas took over in the West Bank. So that's the state of Palestinian politics. If there's going to be an impetus to a, to a better form and maybe the beginnings of a real Palestinian state, it's not going to be through the Palestinians, you know, pushing boycotts on American college campuses or getting, you know, recognized as a pseudo-state at the United Nations. It's going to come, I think, from the Arab states and the Arab states. And again, that's another reason not to, you know, throw Saudi against the wall when there is this opportunity for for a broad Arab-Israeli rapprochement. Right. So what is your... um uh, in terms of your kind of uh, positive ass- assessment of Israel and 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 um, the mood kind of mood there, what was maybe one thing that um, surprised you about this trip? That um, this most recent trip that you weren't expecting? Well, I would say, I mean, I should note that this was in part a pilgrimage, and right. so um, you know, for me, one of the most moving mo- move moments was visiting the. Um, the Church of the Nativity, and you have the sort of grotto where mm-hmm. the actual nativity is tradition holds, and 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 you know figures going back to Justin Martyr, right. you know, 150 A.D. attest that this was the site of the nativity, and so my real surprise was that. I mean, I had heard the talking points, and I got the briefings that I heard from Palestinians, I heard from Israeli negotiators, blah blah blah. I've heard all of that, but that was for me as a right. as a as a new Christian, I, I sort of rushed to pay a sort of abject obeisance to that yeah. side. That, those were the real surprises. Yeah, <laughs> I know yeah. that doesn't really answer your question. It was a no, no, I, it does. No, I, I think that's good. I remember, uh, you know, uh, Mark Twain went and did a kind of tour of the world um, and he wrote Innocence this Abroad. book. Yeah, Innocence Abroad, right. Yeah, and so he talks about, you know, he was not a Christian. In fact, he was really kind of antithetical to Christianity yes. and hostile to it. Um, but he said that he went into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and he, you know, he stood um, uh, kind of, there's this, when you walk into the church, you kind of you can crook to the right a little bit and you go up these stairs and it kind of, it places you on a platform above, you know, the rock and the, the stone, the actual bedrock where they say, you know, the, the crucifixion occurred and you look down on the rock as you're, as you're kind of standing on this platform. And um, he said that even, even he, when he was there and, and kind of all of the trappings of the church looking down on this rock kind of felt a twinge of something, right? I mean, it was just, <laughs> yes, yes, you know, it's like he couldn't yes. escape it. There was something yes. kind of uh, almost magical about that moment. And the Middle East and, and Israel, especially, uh, for Christians, and I think even even non-Christians, has that sort of power. I think it's it's a it's a power that uh, has has sustained over time because it was a site and land and and um, you know kind of earth that saw witness to uh, you know God walking among us, you know, yes. in Christ. And I think there's there's a 
residual uh, kind of power that's there. Not getting into kind of mysticism here, but I mean, there's just something about you know, that you that you sense when you're walking around that makes it, you know, as you, if you've been to other countries in the Middle East, it's you don't get the sense. The same yes. sense. There's something about it. And uh, maybe I'm reading it through my own kind of Christian lens and my own kind of Christian perspective, but that's definitely what I um, uh, get every time. No, but it's, there. A, it's a corporeal faith. It's right. not a yeah, exactly. abstract kind of Gnostic faith. It's like, right. And it's of real places of things that, you know, here... Yeah. Live St. Joseph, right? You know, yeah, there was a, yeah. There's a, right. there's an importance to the land, right. and there's a there yeah there's a kind of and that's a very Catholic kind of um, uh, Thomistic yeah. kind of yeah um, corporeal um, uh, element to the faith. Uh, well, we've veered off a little bit from the Middle East, so that's fine. But um, Sorab Amari is a senior writer, commentary magazine, and he's been our guest uh, for this podcast. His upcoming memoir of uh, his conversion. Uh, to Christianity from Fire by Water comes out in January 2019. It's available for pre-order on um, Amazon.com. And this has been Provcast, the podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can follow us on Twitter at, at Prov Magazine, as well as on Facebook, and v- read our uh, articles at uh, ProvidenceMag.com. So, Rob, thanks for being our guest. Thanks for having me.